0: I'm Karen Lewis, and welcome to Recovery Bites, a show that gets real about recovery, where we welcome voices in the field and voices of experience. Join me for candid interviews with experts in eating disorder and mental health recovery. Listeners can look forward to new perspectives, meaningful conversations, diverse connection, and compelling personal narratives that make a powerful difference in how we live. Episodes focus on life beyond recovery, the good and the not so good, the successes and the challenges, and the authentic accounts of recovered lives. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone, here we go. This is a powerful episode. My guest for today is Tammy Gangloff. And Tammy talks about her experiences with eating disorders, alcoholism, PTSD, chronic medical condition. This is a very, very rich, powerful episode, and I'm just really excited to jump right in. Here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites. I am sitting here staring at this incredible soul that I have known, gosh, 15, 17 years. I'd like to introduce you all to Tammy Gangloff. Tammy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Karen. I'm so excited to be here and to see your amazing
0: soul as well and see me in my closet. As all listeners know, I sit doing the recording in my closet. So Tammy, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes, a little bit about me. So first of all, I've known Karen since my days back as a MFT trainee at Montanito in California as one of my clinical supervisors. Um, So it's super exciting to be here on the I don't say on the other side, but kind of on the other side. So, for me, I am recovered. I'm a recovered professional from a number of things that we'll get into. But I went back to grad school at Antioch in Santa Barbara in 2007. um, Again, which is where I met Karen, and I've been working in the field treating eating disorders and substance use since then, um, in many different. Positions. I've had private practice. I still do a little bit of private practice coaching um, as well, uh, leading support groups. I am really excited that I get to do a lot of advocacy work for eating disorders in DC and our state capitals. And um, I'm currently a director of clinical outreach at a eating disorder and substance abuse program.
0: You know what? That's exactly where I want to start. Eating disorders and substance abuse. So Tammy is there anything you can share about your own narrative that you could because you struggled with both and here you are this incredible sober recovered human being and so and by the way even if you hadn't still be still be wonderful but say a little bit about what was going on. Was it like a -a whack-a-mole for you? Did you struggle with substance abuse and then eating disorders? Was it simultaneously? How do we treat them simultaneously?
1: Yes, all of that. So it was definitely whack-a-mole for me. However, I wasn't willing to admit that I had a problem with alcohol. I was definitely willing to admit I had a problem with depression and maybe a problem with an eating disorder, but definitely not an issue with alcohol. Uh, And so when I went to therapy and ended up going into treatment in 1997, no, 95 for my eating disorder, they sent me to my first AA meeting, um, which, you know, was interesting. And it was cool that I got to leave the treatment center, but I really wasn't into it. And I was like, I'm not buying what you're selling because I don't have this problem. So that really began, is where the whack-a-mole began. Um, I really struggled with depression and PTSD and so I would um, use my eating disorder symptoms and drink. And so they really went hand in hand for me. Um, I did get sober after a few more stays in eating disorder treatment. I um, then went to rehab a few months later and I remember talking to the insurance company and them saying, well, well, Tammy, you just went to eating disorder treatment. I was like, I know I have this too. And we're lucky that we have a lot of treatment options now, but back then we really didn't. And so I called about seven different rehabs and they said, if you have an eating disorder, we can't help you here. Um, And the last one said, we don't do that here, but we have one counselor that knows about eating disorders. So you can come here. Um, so I am really grateful that I have been sober since May 5th, 1997. So celebrated 25 years a few months ago, which is really amazing. And I'm just uh, over the moon, incredibly grateful for everyone that's helped me and that journey. And um, what what I went through those first handful of years sober is that, you know, I wasn't numbing in that way anymore. So. I still was struggling with eating disorder symptoms. There were some that I was able to put in the same category that I put alcohol. So if I was using um, something to purge or um, something to help me restrict, I was able to stop using any substances, but I still continued to struggle uh, with some symptoms. And so when I was close to five years sober, I decided to seek treatment again. I was also what I didn't know at the time, experiencing significant PTSD symptoms. So I was having night terrors and flashbacks and really high anxiety. And so I went to IOP, uh, took some time off of work. And one of the therapists there took out the DSM and showed me the diagnosis of PTSD. And it was just this light bulb moment of, oh, my gosh, like I that's what's been wrong with me this whole time. And so I know on our field, it's challenging sometimes when we diagnose someone we don't want them to feel labeled but for me it was really freeing because if i know i have this now i can treat it so it was really hopeful for me to learn that i had ptsd and so with that the journey continued and um i also didn't know that people recovered right nobody really talked about it back then and when i was in iop at that time um a recovered speaker came in she was a former supermodel. And she, I was like, there's no way she had it as bad as I had it. And she told her story and it was really a serious story. She almost lost her life. And I said, Whoa, I thought I had to go to treatment every few years and that would just be my life. And here's this woman who has recovered. She has this full life. And if that's possible, I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. And that's what I did. I, you know, stayed out of work for, I think I was able to stay out for up to six months, and I went to art therapy and psychiatry and group and nutrition and um, meditating and all the things, following the meal plan, uh, because I now knew I had a shot at not having this in my life, Um, and that was such an amazing thing, so... And actually it was literally, I think like 20 years ago, right now, I was in that last IOP program. So it's been, you know, just about 20 years since that last time I had to go to treatment.
0: Tammy, what I want to point out is your, oh gosh, I don't want to say motivation, but I'm going to use it for the sake of this conversation. Your, Your search for inner peace and balance was relentless. I listened, I was listening to the narrative. As you said, I went through a number of programs for eating disorder. Then I went to rehab. Then I thought I had to go back in a few years. Like it's, it's pretty remarkable that you, there was something inside of you that said, I'm not just going to settle. Even if, even if I don't think I can fully recover, I'm, I'm going to keep going." until I get as far as I can. I have to imagine, though, that you didn't always feel hopeful while you were doing this. How did you, how did you, I'm going to say, push yourself or talk yourself into continuing this process? Because it was long.
1: It was a long process. And, you know, I didn't feel hopeful many days. I do think that one of the things, I know that one of the many things that helped is that I was still very active and I still am, but very active in AA. And I had a lot of people that pushed me when I didn't want to be pushed. And when I said, I don't want to, I don't want to do this PTSD workbook. And um, you know I don't want to continue to, to talk about all these really deep things. So I had a pretty big network of support. And there was always this piece of me that really believed that there was a reason I had to do this to help others. And I think a lot of us that are in this field having recovered have that same drive that, you know I always felt that if there was any reason for all these things I've been through it has to be to at least help somebody else. Um, And that's something that I did early on, even in college. Uh, There was one of the women's psychology courses and I was still in the midst of treatment And, you know, I wanted to go there and speak. So that was a big motivator for me as well. And um, I think those were the two things that really pushed me. I just knew that there was something better than what I had. And I know that, you know, in in meetings and in therapy, you know, you hear all the time, well, you know, life might not always get better, but you will get better. And if I had a chance at getting better, I was going to
0: take it. I'd love to focus a little bit on the challenges of uh, a dual diagnosis or comorbidity when it comes to eating disorders and substance abuse. So what you went through is not uncommon, trying to go to rehab and them saying we don't treat eating disorders. I also want to point out, and I think this is what I was referring to in my last comment, the fact that you didn't stop calling rehabs until you found one that said, "Oh, we have somebody." Like I think you said, it was your seventh mm-hmm. place. Like this, this is hard work. Be going through the recovery process is hard work, which is hard because you're already depressed and you're in your eating disorder and whatnot. So, so what what would you recommend to somebody who is struggling with both, desperately needs both, like? What what's happening in the field where where we can do both at the same time? And just the same. I've worked with clients with eating disorders at residential programs. And I've said, I'm sorry, you have to do you have to work through the substances first. We can't do it. And that's the way we were trained. That's the way at least I was trained. How do you help somebody who's sitting right now listening to this being like, Great, I have both. Yes, that's so important. So
1: one thing I, I thought of as you were just saying that is that when I was making those phone calls to the rehabs, I had the sense of I'm not going to make it. You know, I'm, if I don't get help now, I'm not going to survive this. And, you know, I was 22 and I said, I'm not going to make it to 23. And so that's where that kind of, we talked about that desperation, that desperation was there. Uh, this might kill me and I don't want to, do, I don't want to die. I do have things to live for. And so that's where that Drive came from. Like, I just need to get somewhere. And we say that to clients a lot of times who don't want to go to treatment. We just need you to show up. Just show up and we'll do the rest. We'll get you there. And so what I would say to someone who's struggling with both right now is that there are a lot of treatment options that do have the ability to treat all of it at once to you know, kind of eliminate some of those extra years of suffering that I think some of us went through that uh, went through it years ago. Um, Some treatment programs aren't necessarily equipped to, to deal with both, but I will say that if you're doing this on an outpatient basis, you do have to get sober first. There's nothing we can do in treatment, right? If you're under the influence or, you know, recovering from being under the influence for the last several days, so if you're doing this outside of treatment, you do have to get sober. so I would say find the we can people can help you find the right residential treatment center. There are so many great options as far as even just the alliance. you have know, a lot of different people that can help you find the right resources and that. I always felt that I didn't want to have to stop my life and I was missing out. And I was going to take, a, I took a couple of breaks um, from college. I had to take some semesters off to get help. Um, you know, school will always be there. Work will always be there. But if you don't get the right treatment, you might not make it. Um, and that's kind of the reality of, of, I'd say, this disease. And especially when you have both together. If you can treat both at the same time, and I'd say most of us with, you know, some type of substance use disorder and eating disorder do have trauma. I had significant trauma um, and I had to work through that. Um, And the only way you can do that when you have both is to be in a safe place where you can process both, where you can be free of the availability of any substance and also, you know, be free from being able to use your symptoms in treatment. Um, And then really follow when we always, when we recommend the full continuum of care, it's because it works, it's researched. And that's what I did, you know, residential do PHP. And I would say, you know, stay in, in therapy and stay seeing your dietitian and going to group until they tell you to stop, you know? Um, and so really um, getting into that right treatment program that can truly
0: treat both and then continuing to follow that full continuum of care. You know, a trauma is very it. It is so complicated, um, and and I feel like I'm being like Tammy now. Tell listeners what to do for this, but but these are all things that I'm imagining people are experiencing. How did you get the courage? Was it and and was it just when I say just? Was it when that therapist said, "Here, I'm going to show you the list of what PTSD is"? Like, what had what gave you the courage to finally go into the depths of trauma? Because That's terrifying. And I agree with what you're saying. There are times when giving someone a diagnosis puts them in a box and there's times when giving somebody a diagnosis frees them because then they understand. So how do you help somebody who's like, I'm too afraid. I can't go into the trauma.
1: It is so scary to go into the trauma
0: and, you know,
1: the initial stages of trauma work, I think it's important for, for people to understand is that we're not just going to dive right in head first and kind of dig into to all the past trauma we're going to work on. One of the most important things to me was working on safety and containment first. And that was done, you know, we started that journey when I was still in an IOP and I did work on that in art therapy, right? Safety and containment. How do I ground myself? When I'm working on my trauma, how do I close my journal and go outside and ground with my five senses? Um, the really basic groundwork foundation for working on trauma. So that was really important that I had to do that first. And once I did that, you know, I was still experiencing um, night terrors and a lot of anxiety and flashbacks. And it was really interfering in my life. And I wanted to have a life. And so as hard as it was to show up to therapy and talk about those things, I knew that it's what I had to do, had to do. One of the things that helped me a lot was um group, group work, whether I was in uh when I, w- when I was in residential, but also, you know, I found some great um trauma groups to go to. I had a, a few different that I'd gone to over the years. And that group work was critical because trauma affects everything all of our relationships and so you know those things happen in real time in group you know whether somebody's pissing me off in group it's because you're reminding me of somebody that hurt me um, and and then having to maybe come back I had to do that because I had my inner bratty teenager she's still there sometimes um, and I had to come back and maybe apologize to somebody in group because of how I reacted and you know now knowing I reacted those ways out of my trauma response, but really learning how to have relationships with people in a healthy way happened in those groups. And also just sitting in a room full of people that we had different stories and different backgrounds, um, but just knowing that you get what it's like to have a flashback. You get what it's like to not be able to um, be in a relationship because of your trauma. And so that really helped me also
0: tremendously. I used to often say when I ran groups, what is happening in this group is is a smaller version of what happens to you out in the world and meaning how you're responding, how you're showing up, how you're not showing up and closing down. All these things. I think groups are fantastic because again, it is a smaller version of how you respond in the world. I agree. I love doing group work. I also think there's something really powerful about another client challenging another, a client challenging another client. It's similar to like, if my mother tells me something, I'm not going to believe it. But if a friend tells me, I'm like, okay, I believe it. You know what I'm saying? It's the same thing in groups. And that's okay. We need different levels of relationships in our lives to be supports to tell us things at different times.
1: I agree with all of it. And I still, you know, those relationships that I formed in treatment over the years, those are still connections that I, I had. There's something about um, processing those things with somebody in group that really gets it, that that bond is there. And then that continues to be a support that you have throughout the rest of your recovery. So a hundred percent, absolutely
0: this is going to sound like a hard turn, but I want to take a hard turn because you also deal with a chronic medical condition. And so I, I feel like, Tammy, we've got all these issues that you've, you've really pushed through, but this one is still present. And so can you talk about what, it is, what life has been like with you with scoliosis and how it has impacted you?
1: Thank you. Absolutely. You know, it impacts my life every day. It has for a very long time. I was diagnosed with scoliosis when I was, I want to say nine or 10, my sister was diagnosed first. And so they started following me at that age. And, you know, I wore a back brace in middle school and talk about, you know, self-esteem and body image and I always say that, obviously, I don't think that was the cause of my eating disorder. Um, do I think it contributed? Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I that stuck with me, the body image piece of that stuck with me, um, really for a very, very long time. Um, and then, you know, fast forward um, to my mid-20s, I started experiencing a lot of sig- significant pain. I didn't really have a whole lot of pain when I was growing up other than the emotional side of, uh, side of that. And, um, you know, when I was 25, 26, I should remember that I had my first back surgery. Um, I had, you know, a severely um, herniated disc that was causing a lot of pain down my leg. I couldn't walk. Um, so I ended up in the emergency room and then a, a few months later had my first surgery Um, That surgery was successful, however, I still had pain, I still had the fear of what would happen next, and, you know, I continued, I'd say I've been in physical therapy of some kind for well over 20 years, so that's just part of my normal The the same thing followed when I went to, I moved out West um, soon before I met you. And when I lived in Arizona, same thing I had um, at another level of my spine, um, another disc that was causing a lot of problems. And at that time, a doctor wanted me to have the spine fusion. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. Um, But it continued to follow me. I was limited as far as things that I could do, even things that most people don't think about, like vacuuming and mopping the floor is just a weird position for me. And so I can't do some of those things. And so um it just was part of my normal. uh, When I lived in uh California, same thing, right? All of a sudden I was um you know still struggling on a regular basis with this chronic pain. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding um between um for with people that have chronic medical conditions because some people will see me Um, you know, that I can run, but now I can't, right? And so there's this meme that I post every once in a while, just because I could do that thing doesn't mean I can do it today. And so that's really what life with this is. Uh, We also talk a lot about like the spoon theory. Like if I want to take a walk today, I might not have the strength or the, um, you know, resilience to also do my laundry. So sometimes I have to pick and choose what I want to do physically. Um, a few years ago, I'd say five, six years ago, I started having a lot more significant pain. And I started to see a spine surgeon who is still my doctor today. And now he did not push surgery. But what happened though, is that um, my curve was primarily lumbar, which is you know where a lot of our, where our weight rests, right? That carries us when we walk, when we do things. And so Um, my discs were severely degenerated. So I continued to get in the water and swim. I continued to go to physical therapy, get whatever injections we were going to try. Uh, And then we got to the point where I lost feeling in my left foot and I would start to trip when I walked. Uh, And so then we were facing the the decision to have this surgery and my doctor continued to describe it as life-altering, which was so scary, right? Life-altering, we assume is something that's negative, but it was positive in so many ways, but it was a, you know, I had three surgeries over two separate days to correct my spine. Um, And what happened afterwards is that I did experience some PTSD symptoms and anxiety and depression and it was somewhere around four or five months after surgery. And I was like, what is wrong with me? I'm angry. Um, my, I'm having mood swings. And I was like, Oh, I, I know what this is. There's very little research on it. So I did do, um, my own research on it. And I have since actually presented a webinar to one of the scoliosis societies, um, really to, to keep an eye out because PTSD and depression is something that can come along with these spine surgeries. So. Um, I did have a lot of support with my physical therapist at the time. And um, I did see a psychologist who I will tell you what you shouldn't say to somebody. Um, So what happened though, is I have, you know, I have three large scars, about two feet, probably collectively. And uh, one of them did not heal well. I had to have a lot of treatments to it. And so, you know, part of, um, part of the surgery is that my whole body changed, right? My shape changed. Um, you would think that I would be happy that the hump on my back was gone, which I am, but for a while, I felt like I was not in my body. Um, and it was such a uncomfortable feeling. And so I saw this psychologist who um, didn't really understand what I was saying and made comments like, oh, but you look like a sports model, something that's really was really inappropriate And so when I canceled my next appointment, I explained to her why. And she said, oh, well, when I have somebody else with a body image issue, I'll keep that in mind. I was like, oh, no, no, that's not what this is. Um, There's body image and then there's body image disturbance, which I think happens a lot. It happens to um, women after they have babies. It happens to amputees. And so I said, this is not a body image issue. This is body image disturbance. My body is literally different than it was before I went to the hospital. So um, I have since obviously worked through that. (laughs) I'm seeing a therapist now that gets that. Um, And so I think there's uh, even pieces of it like that that are really missed.
0: I also want to point out that you should never say that to anyone. Oh, you look like a sports model. You're not going there to be told how you look. You're going there. This is one of the problems. (laughs) Now I'm getting super ramped up. Okay. Here's the problem with A, just commenting on people's appearance. That means nothing. If anything, that can invalidate more how you feel on the inside. Oh, great. So I look this way. So now how do I express that I'm in physical pain, emotional pain? I don't feel, you know, appropriate in my body anymore. By the way, this is some of what happens in an eating disorder. Nobody can see my emotional pain. They see my extra, and I think, oh, if I look sick enough, people will then start trying to say, is something wrong? So on so many levels, that comment was inappropriate. It, it amazes me, and then also when she said, "I'll keep it in mind if somebody is struggling with body image," that's a really unenlightened, if that's the right word, because by the way, we all throughout our lives struggle with our bodies. I I haven't had my eating disorder for over twenty five years. That doesn't mean I don't have days where I don't love my body and look in the mirror and go, "Oh, what the hell!" So that's just human. That's like, and and I'm not saying that it's like negative, like, whoa, whoa, we all struggle with our body image because we don't, but there are times. Am I making sense? Like that infuriates me that she said that. Sorry.
1: (laughs) It infuriated me, which is why I, you know, responded to her the way I did. And I of course let the people at that went to a rehab hospital and they were all amazing. But I let them know and absolutely. I mean, um we're human beings and right, some days we're not going to like how our body looks, how our body feels and that's just normal. Um it's part of just being
0: a normal person in our society. It's also so interesting that as you were telling this story about, you know, two surgeries within 3 days and one of the one of the scars not healing well. That psychologist, their first thought was, oh, but you look this way. And my initial thought was, oh my God, Tammy, do you go back to that little girl wearing a brace in elementary school who feels like she looks different? She feels different. She's struggling with how she feels in her body. Like, that's the first thing I thought of was like, wow, that must take you right back. How do you, how do you now, or actually before I say that, is, is that what happened? Because that's, that's how I saw it. You know,
1: at the time it definitely did happen that way. I felt really invalidated and, um, un- and I was so uncomfortable in my body, just like when I had that brace, right? That hard plastic shell over me. I had this, again, this body that didn't look like mine. It didn't feel like mine. The scar that didn't heal well was the, I have a seven or eight inch vertical scar in my stomach. So couldn't miss that, you know, and I, in the mirror. And so, you know, to be invalidated in that way was just really awful. And yeah, absolutely took me back to that. Um, I, I recently, I think I mentioned before we started to have a new injury, I won't get into how it happened. It was uh, something that was a mistake on the part of a provider. And I went to see one of my doctors and um, she said, you know, you look strong. You look healthy. So you have to advocate for yourself even more. And that's when I went back to thinking about our clients, or when I was in an eating disorder, because we get that. I got that all the time. You look okay, um, so you must be okay. And so that was when she said that. I was like, Wow! Like I don't think I've ever had a doctor say that to me about my physical um, condition, about my medical. Um, because right, I we call it an invisible illness. Right on the outside. I look okay. Um, you know, I look strong, I look healthy, so I must be okay. And, you know, I have this, she said, you have this massive amount of metal on your spine and, you know, you have, it's really complicated and how my body moves is very different than somebody who doesn't have a spine fusion. So, um, when she said that, I was like, wow, absolutely. Um, how many times, right. Have our clients heard that. Mm -hmm. You know, really minimizes their experience. So, um, I mean, that was just—I think last week that I saw this doctor, and that really resonated
0: with me. I want to ask, what it is that you, what, what did you learn in eating disorder treatment and rehab that kept you from relapsing in either one? And I'll—I'll tell you why I'm asking this. To a lesser scale. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I do the podcast is I was running a group once and somebody was saying, the client was saying they had a really bad week and they were engaging in behaviors. And I said, can you tell me a little bit more about what was happening? And they were, and and now I'm paraphrasing, but they were like, oh, I had to get a filling and I, I didn't do well on an exam and my boyfriend and I had a fight. So of course I went back to behaviors and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Basically you were in the world. We, this happens. Life is not always perfect. That doesn't give us a hall pass or an automatic go. Oh, of course I'm going to go back to behaviors. Look at what I just went through. That's, that's, that's still being in your eating disorder. And the reality is, is there's no eating disorder behavior or amount of alcohol for that matter. That's going to change the filling, the bad grade, the conflict with the partner, it's only just going to add more stressors. So I wanted people to know, welcome to the world. I have really, really wonderful things that happen to me. I can actually say on a daily basis. And then I also have a lot of challenges and conflict in my own life. I wouldn't, I don't go back to my eating disorder. What would you, how would you guide somebody? That's a really great question.
1: (laughs) You know, I'd say for me with the, a lot of the things I learned in my sobriety really helped reinforce the eating disorder recovery. And so, you know, there's all these slogans that sound really cheesy, but they work and they stick with me. You know, the, you know, you can't drink under any and all conditions that what you just said, me drinking isn't going to do anything but make this situation worse. You know, there's there's no benefit to it, um, and it's you know for me it was looking back, you know, looking at the evidence, right? Like, what evidence do I have that shows that me having a drink is going to make this better? I have none. I have a lot of evidence showing me exactly um, how it's going to hurt me. You know, getting sober at 22, I had a lot of people you know, ask me like, how do you know that you have a problem? You're so young. And I said, well, let me give you just one or two examples. Um, I don't have to think very far to see that I had such a problem. Um, for me, it's, it's not black and white, but it feels like it is because for me, I still feel the same way I did when I got sober is that if I drink, I'm not going to make it right. I get depressed and, uh, I can have suicidal thinking. And so for me, um, if I have you know a relationship ends and I want to take a drink over it, I know where it might take me. Um, and the same thing I'd say with the eating disorder, you know i couldn't I couldn't have a relationship. I couldn't have a career um, and you know, when I was really struggling, I did what they taught me. I still do those things that that I learned in treatment early on. If I'm going through a difficult time, you know i I journal, I reach out for help. I schedule the extra appointment with my therapist. I go to an extra meeting. Um, there's all these things that we learned early on that still work today. And I always say that in group, like all these things that we're working on now will work for the rest of your life if you keep practicing them. Um, and that doesn't mean that you have to follow a meal plan and you know count your exchanges or whatever it is. It just means that you need to use these life skills, um, grounding skills. You know, I might feel really intense emotions, but I also know from treatment that these really intense emotions are all going to last for a little while. And I just have to sit with them and let them pass um, and do whatever might help me, whether it's a mindful walk or uh, journaling or whatever might help me get through that time. And so I have to remember those things also. I think just the years of practice, uh, it sounds that like grad school education, like neurons that fire together, wire together, that years of practicing those behaviors, they're um, just natural over time. And I'd say it wasn't for me, it was probably, I'm going to say a few years into my eating disorder recovery. And um, I'd lost a really close friend of mine. And it was really at that time, probably about a week later that I I, I realized Wow, I didn't. It wasn't a thought. It wasn't even a thought to restrict or use any type of symptom or go for alcohol. And I was like, "This is what this is what being recovered means." That uh, I'm not even having the thought that I need to use one of those things in order to get through this difficult time.
0: And Tammy, that is being recovered. And I and 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 again, my mantra has always been. You know, what I say to my clients is there is not one eating disorder behavior that is going to make any situation even tiny bit better. It may numb you out for a moment, but now you have a bigger problem because you've just engaged in behaviors, which probably came with secrecy, which probably came with lying, which probably, so now we've got, we've got more. And so it's, it's true and, and it's hard work until it's not. Does that make sense? like it was hard for me at the beginning of my recovery process to not go to not go back to a behavior people don't want to feel discomfort that's a, that's normal but like you said with skills that discomfort passes and then you move through it with eating disorders or using any kind of substance that suffering and distress just gets put on pause put on hold until you release the whole button, which means you've sobered up or the dating disorder behavior is over. And now you still have the problem.
1: Absolutely. That problem is still waiting for you, right? It's still waiting for you exactly when you're not using those symptoms anymore. So, um, you know, and the reality is that discomfort might not go away that afternoon. It might be something that's going to take a while to work through. And so, Um, knowing that I can sit through this really, this discomfort, this really difficult life situation. And I don't have to do any of those things to deal with how I'm
0: feeling. Tammy, I am sorry to say that we are coming to a close because it has been so unbelievable sitting with you. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to share with listeners before we end?
1: I don't think so, other than, you know, um, I think there's this feeling, especially in early recovery, that someone with, you know, 20, 25, 30 years recovered from an eating disorder. Well, that's something that you can do, but I can't do that. And, you know, I look at my history and also we, you and I have the benefit of having years of witnessing this you know, in, in clients that have come through treatment, um, that it doesn't matter what um, what your history is, what disorder you have, um, there's hope and that everybody has the opportunity to really fully recover um, if you are willing to do the work, right? It's, it's really hard work, but just that that hope is really there um, and that I hold that hope for And you do as well for for anybody that that's willing to just um, step foot into this journey of recovery, that that hope is really um, is there. You know, I I went to one of Carolyn's study groups when I first moved to California before I went to grad school. Even I just knew I wanted to go. And um, so for those of who don't know, Carolyn Coston used to have these monthly study groups that anybody could go to. And so. I wasn't technically a student yet, but I had applied to grad school. And I went and I'd emailed her um, about a place I was volunteering that didn't want me to talk about substance use and eating disorders. And I was really mad about it. So she encouraged me to bring it up in group, and I did. And there was a, I think it was a, a doctor that said, Well, people that have both and have PTSD. They don't. They don't get better. And I raised my hand. I said, um, "Actually, they they do because I got better. So um, just knowing that no matter what kind of additional diagnosis you have, that um, recovery is there for you."
0: And I also just want to add how terrifying it is that somebody in the position of a medical doctor would make such a strong statement and say, "People with A, B, and C." That equation will never get better. That is harmful and egregious. Mm -hmm. And there isn't anything that we cannot recover from. That doesn't mean it's going to be, you know, in the near future. It might take a long time, whatever it is. But I'm so glad that you were in that group that day and you raised your hand and you're like, evidence one, here I am. So, Tammy, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. It really means a lot to me to have you here. Thank
1: you. It means a lot for me to be here and to be here with you. um, is, is amazing. So thank you.
0: Okay, everyone. Well, that does it for another episode of Recovery Bites. I look forward to speaking with each and every one of you next week. Take care and stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Recovery Bites. Be sure to visit recoverybitespodcast.com to join the conversation, access show notes, listen to past episodes, and more. You can also find us by searching for Recovery Bites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and major podcast streaming players. For weekly episode releases, you can follow us at, at recoverybitespod on Instagram. If you're interested in becoming a guest on the show or to submit a guest request, please visit Karen Lewis edc.com forward slash podcast sign up to begin the process. I'd also like to send out a heartfelt thank you to my producer, Jen Galvin. It is unbelievable the magic she does behind the scenes. All right, everyone. See you next week for another Recovery bite.